Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Danielle Vincent. I'm the senior associate in the abuse team at Hugh James. And today I am joined by my colleague, Felina. Hi, Felina. Hi, Danielle. Hi, podcast listeners. So today we are talking about a case that's hit the media, which is Colin Pitchfork reoffending. Now, I just want to give people a trigger warning that we're going to be talking about sexual abuse and rape. So if this is something that's triggering to you, this may be one to pass over. But if you're happy to stick with us, we will continue. So, Felina, we've been talking about just a story that came up in the press this week about somebody that was convicted in the late 80s, actually, for two murders and sexual assaults of two young women in Leicestershire, I believe. And he was released in September. Is that correct? Yeah, so obviously a very serious, very sad case. He's spent 30 years in prison. As you said, he was released September of this year. The issue is not necessarily his release, just the fact that he was released. The issue that unfortunately is, you know, all over the media and is very serious in itself is that he's actually been recalled back to prison for very serious reasons in brief for breaching his conditions of his release. Yeah, so we should make clear that this is stuff in the media. There's been no allegations of further sexual assault or any wrongdoing on his behalf in respect of any assault or, or criminal actions that he has done. We are talking genuinely in respect of breaching his terms of release. That's right, yeah. So when we were looking at this, and we should mention that this particular case, this individual was released for less than two months, is that we were just talking in general about when people are released, you know, the terms of that release and how things are monitored, weren't we? Yeah, so this case specifically, he, I think, as far as I understand from the articles, had very strict, actually, license conditions, very strict monitoring. For those of us who aren't familiar with what this means, it could mean that he has to, or, or an individual, someone who's who's obviously been released, has to check in with a probation officer, you know, have to attend certain places at certain times, have restriction on times that they're allowed out, on places where they're allowed to be, electronic tagging, which would show where he's been, bans on who they talk to. You know, a lot of the time it could be bans on perhaps ex-partners if they've been in trouble for domestic Mm -hmm. violence, or it might be a ban on being near schools or children or have partners with children if, if that's something that they've been in trouble for. So, there's a range of different monitoring and license conditions that can apply. And in this particular case, he had apparently a lot of those conditions. 
And it was found quite quickly, it seems, that he was approaching young people, young girls, I should say, um, you know, sort of just out, you know, on the street. I'm not sure how that was found out, but it obviously was. And as Danielle's already said, we do not know if there's been any allegations more serious than him speaking to these young people. We don't know that. But he has breached his license conditions. And so he has been recalled. And as Daniel said, it was it was quite quick that happened a couple of months later. One of the things, you know, I thought when I read this article is that somebody spent 30 years in prison. You know, that they're, they're out within two months. What the process is when somebody is coming up for parole. And this was some of the criticism that was in some of the articles that I read. So, you know, you've got the parole board that make a decision. You've got psychiatrists or psychologists that will work with the individual to make sure that they're not going to re-offend. And then there's all these different agencies that clearly have to work together very closely to make sure that individual's coming out, that individual's safe and is safe to society. But there were concerns, even um, the current Justice Secretary, Dominic Rabb, had concerns about this and about the proposed overhaul. Apparently, there's going to be a review next year about what the position is for people being released. But as you mentioned, this individual had over 40 licensing conditions, which is is quite extensive, I imagine. I mean, I don't know what the normal amount is, you know, what the scale is, but that sounds like a lot. Yeah, and and I'm sure, I mean, probably very, very justified, you know, as an individual who wants to feel safe when somebody's been in prison that long. For people listening, you know, there's there's two sort of sides to this. The one side is obviously you don't want dangerous individuals to be released, even if they're on 40 licensed conditions. If they're not a safe individual, then they're not a safe individual. But then the other side of it is, is, well, he's committed these crimes, not necessarily this person, but someone has committed their crime, they have lived the punishment, And they have the right, I would say, to show that they have changed and to be given the chance to abide by what conditions deems them safe. It is so unfortunate cases like this where they, unfortunately, for whatever reason, re-offend. And Danielle, do you you know how often re-offending does happen? Well, unfortunately, re-offending rates, like any statistics that that you and I will talk about, aren't necessarily very correct or have a true reflection. Because especially, you know, we're talking about here re-offending specifically in respect of forms of sexual abuse, where survivors don't generally, well, I say don't generally, a lot of people will not come forward at the time or may not come forward at all. So when we're talking about statistics, I think we have to be quite guarded when we talk about reoffending. But one of the things that the statistics, I looked at statistics in the US and here to see whether there was a great variation and the highest reoffending statistics seem to be with online abuse, which I imagine because that's possibly easily more accessible to an individual, especially if they've offended to re-offend. So accessing child pornography, things like that. But the statistics I looked at found that the longer a person had not re-offended for, the the likelihood that they wouldn't re-offend, which seems quite logical. 
when I read this article, it, it reminded me, I watched, and I don't know whether you've ever seen it, years and years ago, Stacey Dooley did a documentary for BBC, it was in 2018, called Second Chance Sex Offenders, that looked at the position in America rather than here, in respect of when people are released. And in certain states in Florida, they had big metal signposts, you know, like signposts that we would put like parking times on in the UK, you know, those big signs that basically said a sex offender lives here, beware. And then there were other communities that had specific areas where sex offenders could live. I'd never heard of that. And I was quite surprised, especially, you know, somewhere like America, that that was something that took place. So if any of our listeners are, you know, interested in that documentary, I checked and it's still on the BBC to, to watch. Um, but that was quite an eye-opener that I was quite surprised that that was, that happened there. Something uh, actually slightly off that and what you said just before about online offending is that there, there are obviously many reasons why people re-offend. You know, it's hard to narrow down in a lot of cases, I'm sure. But the way you mentioned, you know, that these sex offenders live in a separate community I have read, I cannot recall the name of it now, but I'm sure that I can, um, you know, add this to the blog post at a later date. But there is research to show that online offending increases, you know, when that person has gone through prison and actually met other individuals who do not see online offending as particularly serious, you know, and it doesn't encourage them to go on to worse offending and contact offending, but it doesn't assist them in recovering to not continue to online offend because you know if you're surrounded by people who actually contact offend you probably feel you know not as worse an offender as they are which obviously depending on the circumstances may not even be justified and so I think just from you saying about these communities in Florida to me that doesn't really sound like the best idea no, I, I didn't think it at the time um, when I watched it. And, you know, you are having a number of mixing criminals. And that goes for all different types of, of crimes. When you have people that, that do complete the same crime together, it's yeah, a, a learning factor. You're learning from others. But yeah, the, the reason I just really wanted to discuss this one was because there are the rare occasions where we are absolutely shocked in something in the media where somebody is released. You know, sometimes somebody is given a new identity and then they go out and they reoffend, and it's just so shocking to society. And it does happen now and again. You know, we we've discussed other cases where it, it's happened, and you know, we want to feel safer on our streets. There's been a number of offences, especially against women lately, that we we've talked about that you know, the, the number of movements that we just want to make sure that the parole boards are really considering everything carefully and what conditions are put in place to keep everybody safe, I think. That's right. And something you touched upon earlier was that all these organisations actually have to work together. Yeah. And I think just making sure that all these different organisations communicate with each other. So the probation service, any other service under the Ministry of Justice, police officers, so if somebody does step out of line and perhaps is reported to the police for something, you know, their probation officer needs to know the second after it happens. And it's it's just communication between all these different services, which I'm sure could be very difficult when there's a number of different curfews, different conditions, licenses, all of those things. It must be quite complicated. I think as well, you know, at the time that we're in at the moment, you know, we've talked about 
many different organizations that have struggled during the COVID period. And I imagine probation officers are, are just the same, make sure somebody's their registered address, whether they're understaffed, all of these things. And, you know, we understand these things when we're talking about them. But as we say, there's got to be a balance of safety for all individuals. Yeah, very fair point, Danielle. So thank you for that, Felina. Podcast listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. As always, if you've got any questions or any comments or any other suggested podcasts, we would love to hear from you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.